That was such a short prayer. I, uh, <laughs> didn't give me time to get up here. Anything. Yeah, we need to... Yeah, amateurs. We're just amateurs. Uh, okay. Hey, so... Uh, I hope you can hang out and, and, and stay with us again. Like, like Janelle said, I just want to reiterate, uh, you know, if you didn't know there was a potluck today and you're like, oh, I didn't bring anything. Honestly, there is so much food there. So hang out with us and, and do this. This is, I think these are really special and important times. We, we don't nearly do this enough. Uh, as a community, as a fellowship. So uh, if you can, I think it'd be awesome. I can't think of a more appropriate passage of Scripture for us to be looking at uh, today uh, in Luke uh, since we're having this post-Thanksgiving potluck. Uh, it, it, we're going to be reading about a meal scene in uh, in Luke's gospel today. It's amazing how these things work out. Uh, uh, Luke's gospel, it's really interesting. Luke's gospel contains more meal scenes than any of the other gospels. There's actually two unique features to Luke. It contains more meal scenes than any other, and it also has the travel narrative uh, where Jesus is traveling from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And so if we were looking at Luke's vision of the gospel's impact on life, we would say that Luke sees it as a journey, but he also sees it as a party because we see a lot of of that, a lot of feasting going on. Today we're going to be reading about a dinner party that Jesus has been invited to by the Pharisees, the people that have, in this narrative so far, shown themselves to be at odds with Jesus. Interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't seem to balk at going and hanging out with the people who are intent on destroying him, uh, and he'll accept that. But as usual, he's going to disrupt the norm, and he's going to provide some insights into the nature of this good news that Jesus has come to, to share with us, to declare to the human race, to the world. Uh, and he's going to give us some lessons about grace, and that's what we'll be thinking about today. So we're going to get into our study of Luke. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app and you want to follow along, which I highly recommend, uh, if you go to Luke chapter 14, please. Last week we finished up with chapter 13. We read a rather lengthy session uh, where Jesus tried to guide our expectations as to what to look for as the kingdom of God is at work in this world. Because sometimes it's really small. Sometimes it's hard to see. It's, it would be tempting to think that nothing is happening. And, 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 and Jesus kind of encouraged us to, to, to have those expectations tempered in, in, in our expectations of, of how it looks when God's at work. I, I got lost in what I was saying there. That was a really awkward sentence. But what I mean is, that that we don't always have to be looking for the big and bombastic things taking place, that God's kingdom is always at work, even in the mundane things that are happening in our lives. Now, today, we'll, we're going we're gonna to read a repeated pattern. Uh, it's almost mirroring exactly, except the, you know, the place where it takes place is a little different, but almost identically to what happened back in chapter 13. There's going to be a healing that takes place on the Sabbath, and then Jesus is going to give an exhortation about the nature of of God's work. So if you're there in Luke 14, we're going to begin with verse 1. It says, One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. Yeah, of course they were. There was a man there whose arms and legs were swollen. Most people think that's probably dropsy, but we don't know for sure. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the religious law, Is it permitted in the law to heal people on Sabbath day or not? When they refused to answer, 
Jesus touched the sick man and healed him and sent him away. Then he turned to them and he said, which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? Again, they couldn't answer. When Jesus noticed all, that all who had come to dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. Now, in the NLT, it says advice. If you're using a different translation, it will say parable. It's a very curious translation choice uh, for the NLT because in the Greek, the word is in there. It says parabolos. It's, it's parable. It doesn't read like a traditional parable. I think that's what throws people. But I think this is Luke cluing us in that this is a parable in disguise. Jesus is going to be saying some things that you wouldn't think are a parable right off the bat. But as you examine it and think about it, you realize it is more than that. All right. Verse 8. Uh, when you're invited to a wedding feast, don't seat, sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you'll be embarrassed and you'll have to take whatever seat is left at the, at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he'll come and say, friend, I have a better place for you. And then you'll be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So, as I said before, this is a repeated pattern here, and, and it should catch our attention. It's difficult for us as Westerners to read these repetitions because it feels laborious after a while. Yeah, we already saw this, Jesus. We understand. But there's a reason for this repetition. It's meant to create emphasis. It's meant to catch our attention so that we really pay attention to this repeated thing that's happening here. So once again, Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, and it is offensive. It's an offensive action to the religious leaders who have invited him to this party. And so Jesus explains his actions by pointing out how very appropriate it is to restore and to deliver on the Sabbath, how anyone would do the same for someone they cared about or someone that was important to them, someone or something even. Uh, and, and this is what the Sabbath truly points to anyway. It's the idea of deliverance and restorations. Now, the Pharisees' refusal to answer Jesus' pointed question indicates to us that they didn't agree with him, but they also didn't have any kind of ammunition to come back at him with. Well, you know, what are you going to say with that? So then Jesus uses the tension of the silence that's there to address the real problem, the real underlying issue that's at work in this. He notices that everyone coming to this dinner party is jockeying for positions of honor. Now, again, for us, we're so far removed from this culture and time, we have to stop and go, what? What does that mean? What are you even talking about? Because most of us aren't familiar with the the traditions that surround all of this. For us, the position of honor at the table is the one that can still see the TV set while we're we're eating. In the first century Mediterranean world, uh, there were different procedures for how a person ate and what all went into it than what we have. For one thing, people didn't sit at a table in chairs you know, around a rectangular or round table like we do, they sat at what was called a triclinium. It was a U-shaped table where the guests would face each other on three sides. It could be long or small. This is a small version of it on the screen there. One side of the U was the place of honor. One of these things is a pointer, right? No. Uh, (laughs) One side was a place of honor. Most of us believe that it was the far side of the U, the, 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 
the, the right side, if you're, or the left side, if you're looking at it, and the middle seat was the seat of honor, and then, which would be occupied normally by the host of the dinner, and then the, the, the seats next to them were the places next in, in, in honor, the, the, the higher seats. Um, and so Jesus people, Jesus people, Jesus sees people <laughs> scrambling to get into these, these positions here next to the host and assuming their position with the host. So Jesus is telling them something that sounds like good dining etiquette, but in reality is a parable. It's a story on the surface that seems like good advice. You know, this is how you're going to avoid public embarrassment. But parables are never about what's on the surface. This is. Yeah, yeah. People didn't sit upright at tables like that. They'd actually recline on cushions and, and they'd lean on their left arm and, and eat with their, their right hand. Good question. So that was the, the normal uh, procedure for that. Everything that Jesus is talking about here is connected to the healing that he did at the beginning of this. It's all connected to that. It's, it's connected to the disapproval of the religious leaders towards this healing that he did. Jesus is not likely talking about the dinner party that's right in front of them. He's talking about this banquet of God's table in God's kingdom that the Israelites had been looking for. We'll get to that in a minute. He's talking to those religious leaders who saw themselves as important uh, arbiters of right and wrong, as the honored ones in God's order of things, who made decisions at the expense of the little people, like this man who was just healed. And the driving point is verse 11. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's a warning for us that religious pride can obscure God's generous grace for humanity. In the context of Jesus' day, it was just assumed that those who were well-off and well-trained in the law of Moses were superior in God's sight to those who weren't in those kinds of positions, who didn't have the opportunity to study the Torah, who had to work all the time or, you know, scrounge for their living. That's why they so easily pushed themselves forward as God's elite. They saw themselves on the top of the mountain. They were intent on keeping it that way. We want to make sure that we're the ones that are up here getting this respect. But everything Jesus has done in the Gospels that we read and is doing is challenging that assumption And here he's explaining that they can't even recognize what God is doing because of their pride, because of this assumed position that they have with God, because they saw themselves as greater adherents to the law. They not only didn't see a responsibility to show compassion to this person who was suffering, they believed they had a prohibition from showing that kind of compassion. Religious pride was obscuring God's grace. And so, you know, it's all fine and good for us to look at the Pharisees and say, oh, those guys. But what do we do with this? As 21st century American Christians, what do we do with this warning? What are the areas of life and culture or spirituality that we might see ourselves as superior to someone else? where that sense of superiority restricts our willingness to be compassionate or empathetic. Maybe it's issues like race, where we see our particular culture as superior to another, 
And therefore, we see no need or even a prohibition to, to being empathetic to cries of injustice we may hear. Maybe there are assumptions of superiority that we don't even realize are manifestations of pride. Maybe, you know, uh, an assumption that, that looks at poor people and assumes, well, they're lazy. That's what's going on there. So here's the real lesson that we take from this, and this is really important. Anytime we look at our own cultural moors and ethics and assume it provides us a special place with God, we are actively working against God's grace. A place of superiority in position with God based on whatever cultural, ethical, religious accoutrements, it's working against what it is that God's actually up to. Because that's the problem with all of this. This position forgets that all of us are equally in need of God's generous grace. There's not a person here, there's not a person alive that isn't in need of God's grace. We forget it's the same grace that saved a wretch like me as is available to all humanity. If God didn't remember our original value, then none of us would be here. But God knows who we are. God wants to draw that good out of us. But none of us did anything to deserve this. All right. We need to follow instead Paul's teaching in Philippians 2.3. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or from a cheap desire to boast, but be humble toward one another, always considering others better than yourself. That is not an easy task. That's a lifetime worth of work right there. Everything about us is geared to assume we're right and better and everything. That's part of self-preservation and how we, you know, advance in the world. And yet, this is the gospel's claim on our lives. Take a different, take a different tack here. Take a different look at yourself. Take a different look at the world around you. Okay. Let's move on. Verse 12. Then he turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they'll invite you back, and that'll be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then, at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. So here we have Jesus moving from talking to the guests to instructing the host, and again, this is more than just talking about dining or hosting etiquette. Remember, there's a, there's a parabolic influence. He's, he's using these words to get at something deeper that's going on here. He's cluing us in on the nature of God, who is the ultimate host, inviting us into the kingdom of God. Obviously, there is a, a temporal lesson here, one that Jesus emphasizes in other places as well, giving and being generous to those who can't repay generosity for the sake of doing good, not trying to get something in return for it all. But his his strategic use of, of the poor, the blind, and the disabled is also pointing back to the work of the gospel. I don't know if you remember, but back in chapter uh, 4 of Luke's gospel, Jesus went to his hometown and he went to talk in the synagogue and they handed him the scroll of Isaiah 61 and he read, "'The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, "'for he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor.'" He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, 
and the oppressed will be set free. And then he looked at everybody and said, this day, these words have been fulfilled. In other words, God's kingdom is now going to be revealed uh, through him, through Jesus. The mission was to reach out to the marginalized and the oppressed and lift them up into God's grace. And and where the the common thinking of Jesus' day was that people in the margins were getting what they deserved for some sin somewhere, they should stay in the margins because that's where God put them. Jesus comes declaring that inclusion is the chief characteristic of God's generous grace, of this amazing grace that he's let loose into this world. And this, again, goes back to the healing that Jesus did at the beginning of this section. The Pharisees were offended because it happened on the Sabbath, because they had taken this provision that God had given Israel for rest and restoration, and they turned it into a prohibition that determined if a person was in or out with God. They had completely warped the meaning of it. They had warped their religion into something that was all about excluding those who did it wrong. Their mission was to shut the doors, to restrict access to the kingdom, and keep the riffraff out, you know. And Jesus was there kicking all the doors down and inviting everybody, anybody in. Jesus rewrites the guest list. And I'm so grateful that he did. And again, the challenge to us as modern evangelicals is to examine our own assumptions about who God would want us associating with, who God even wants to associate with. God's mission for the church is not to get us looking as respectable as possible. We got to give that notion up right now. And honestly, if that were the goal, man, Eastgate would be in so much trouble at this point. (laughs) We've been given the mission, according to Paul, of reconciliation. The church is called to throw the doors open wide. Invite anyone and everyone in, not just because we think we'll get a convert out of the deal somewhere, but because we're called to demonstrate to the world around us this unthinkable, borderless love that God has for the human race. Martin Luther said we need to do good works for no other reason than that our neighbor needs them. And the same applies to how we express God's love. We need to love people no matter who they are, not because of any other thing than that they need to be loved. They need to know that God loves them. All right, well, we'll keep reading here. Verse 15. I'm trying to make this quick because we've got to eat. Okay. <laughs> Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing it'll be to attend the banquet in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied with this story. You know, a man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell all the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I just bought a field. I have to inspect it. Please excuse me. Others said, I just bought five pairs of oxen. I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married. I can't come. The servant returned and told his master what they said. And the master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, there's still room for more. So his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will even get the smallest taste of my banquet. 
All right, so in the ancient world, feasts and, and banquets like this thrown by royalty, they were magnificent things. We still have, you know, traces of that within our culture, but even up into the Middle Ages, this was a big deal. If there was a royal feast of some kind, that was, that was a big deal. It would last for days, and it was an event that people would remember for a lifetime. The feasts that God set up for Israel in the law of Moses were meant to be like this, royal feasts, only God was the host. God was the royalty with the people coming and celebrating with him. It was all about God wanting to have his people gather around and join him in a meal. That was the idea anyway. They, they, they came to be realized as a picture of what God intends for the human race and in the restoration of this world. Let me just read to you what Isaiah says, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 25. He gave this forecast. The Lord will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. It was an image uh, uh, conveying God's intent to, to set everything right, to make all things new, to remove the greatest threat that we as human beings face, to set this fallen world back on its original course that God intended for it. When God's people gather together for a meal, I just think it forecasts that. When we celebrate the communion together, or like today what we're going to do, when we're going to eat together, it's, it's such a special thing. It's forecasting what it is that God's intending. And, and that's what this guy at the table in verse 15, that's what he's all excited about. He just blurts out, man, I can't wait for that day. That's going to be great. We'll be in God's banquet. And Jesus tells a parable that actually qualifies what it is that they're anticipating. And it becomes pretty clear that he's indicating that the religious leaders, the ones first invited to the banquet, were now snubbing God's feast because they had their own feast plans. They had their own agenda in this whole thing. They had their own ways in which they were working it out, their own systems, and they weren't really interested in God's original intent. And here in the story, the host has this party all ready to go, but there's no guests to enjoy it. And here's where the theme of radical inclusiveness emerges again in Jesus' representation of God's reign, of what it is that good news is meant to be doing in this world. The religious leaders didn't care for God's people because they were trying to build their own kingdoms. They had no interest in what God w- was up to. And by doing that, they were disqualifying themselves from being at the party, which is a, a stunning realization to have that the most religious among them were the ones who were actually on the outside. And one of Jesus' typical reversals here, it's not the marginalized, it's not the unfit or the unskilled outcasts who are left out uh, of the party, it's the bullies who acted like they were in charge that don't make it in. They would be replaced by those who were humble enough to embrace God's love for themselves. And he's making the point, and this is really an important point for all of us to remember, that everyone who wants it will receive God's generous grace. Was I off? I'm sorry about that. So in this story, he tells them to go into the alleyways and the hedges looking for those who would have normally been outside the scope 
of a royal invitation. You know, royal invitations, those go to those who are royalty themselves, those in the upper echelons of any societal order. Here he's telling them, don't, don't go to that. Go the opposite end. Go out to the hedges behind the, you know, the people that are homeless living out behind the bushes. Go out and, and take, take care of them. They go into the alleyways looking for everyone, the good, the bad, anyone is welcome. This picture is Jesus' own mission, going specifically to sinners. He was constantly being criticized for that by the religious elite. Why does he eat with sinners? What's his problem? His retort always is, hey, it's, it's the sick who need the doctor, not those who are well. So once again, we have this picture of a God who has this marvelous disdain for all of the human categorizations of worth or unworthy, of acceptable or unclean. Open the doors, he's saying. Anyone is welcome into his family. Anyone can receive his grace if we'll be humble enough to want it. And that's, I guess, the key, isn't it? To be humble enough to recognize the need and the desire for it. To want it. To want this forgiveness, to want to be saved. But that is all that's required. Just to be humble enough to accept the invitation when it comes. We have to be poor in spirit, Jesus described it as in the Sermon on the Mount, recognizing that our salvation is not achievable on our own. It requires a transcendent intervention. Questions of social status or observance of religious regulations. It even seems like issues of, of precise, you know, ethical natures are set aside in favor of the urgency of the invitation. This party's ready. This kingdom is here. It's advancing in this world. There's really no time to dilly dally. Come on in. Just come on in. We'll figure all this stuff out as we go. We'll deal with this. This is our problem as the church. We're constantly trying to figure it out before anybody gets here. <laughs> we're, we're standing at the door making sure the riffraff don't come in. We forget we were the riffraff who first got in there. Settle down, Rob. It's, it's okay. It'll, we'll make it. It'll be all right. Religion, it seems, breeds exclusion. God's grace reveals this stunning inclusion of anyone who will. So again, who are we going to be? How do we view God's mission for us as the church? What are our priorities when it comes to the gospel and the world in which we've been placed? Are we called to identify who's wrong and censure them somehow? Or are we called to an extent, to, to extend an invitation to a party that no one really deserves to attend based on their behavior or intelligence or anything else. I'm so grateful that that invitation came to me. I'm so thankful that while I was sitting amid the wreckage of my own life, that invitation plopped into my lap and said, hey, come on in. You're invited to the king's party. All you need to do is believe that it is for you. So let's believe that. Let's be humble enough to embrace God's reckless love for us. And when we've embraced that for ourselves, then let's be reckless enough to extend it to everyone else around us. Let's show off to the world the amazing things that God's love can do. Right on? All right, very cool. Will you stand with me, please?
God, we are grateful to you for sending out an invitation. We're grateful to you that you are for us. As we sang that this morning, he is for you. It just was ringing in my heart, the reality of this. God is not against us. He's for us. Father, you're for us. And there are so many forces in this world at work to to categorize and identify us and push us one way or the other. What we need is that clarion word. You are for us. Help us believe that. Help us embrace that and then reflect that into the world. Help us, Father, to be the people that you intended us to be, carriers of your gospel grace to the world. Father, uh, we're preparing to eat a meal together here, Lord, and we just...